Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show via email. Just click on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of the screen and every time I upload a new show, you will be notified in your inbox and that is the only email you'll receive. Now, it is my pleasure today uh, to be talking to John Butler. As you can probably hear, we're sitting in, in, in the pub. We're having a nice winter's pub lunch. Um, John is a partner in the research, investment and consulting firm Amphora Capital. He has 17 years experience in global finance, working for major investment banks in the UK, the US and in Germany. He was um, MD and head of index strategies at Deutsche Bank and he was head of the European interest rate strategy at Lehman Brothers before he um, started up Amphora Capital. John, hello, welcome to the show. Um, let's start. Interest rates. You were head of European interest rate strategy. Uh, this is a, a, an interest rate environment almost like we've never seen before. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Well, the obvious observation one comes to here is that interest rates are extremely low in any reasonable historical comparison. I mean, certainly in our lifetimes, and to be honest, you can go back several generations and you've never had a situation where interest rates, just about everywhere you look uh, in the world, are at historic lows. And that that is unusual by definition. It's caused by a set of conditions which is itself unusual, which is basically a huge excess of debt in the world. Investors have more credit risk than they want to have, so they're trying to reduce credit risk by moving into government bonds and other forms of sort of pure interest rate risk. That drives interest rates down. But of course, central banks facilitate this by holding policy rates at, well, essentially zero uh, in uh, most major economies. If, if interest rates were set entirely by the free market, where do you think they'd be? Let's use the U.S. as our, as our benchmark. Well, the assumption is, because the Fed, of course, is holding them at what people regard as emergency levels, the assumption is that were the Fed not doing that, interest rates would be somewhat higher. But it has a lot to do with debt dynamics. For example, let's say that the Fed stopped setting interest rates and left it to the market, but retained its lender of last resort function in that if the market then pushed interest rates to a level which threatened the, uh, the, the, uh, a major financial institution and thereby the entire financial system, if the Fed nevertheless is willing to throw a lot of money at the market, a lot of liquidity at the market, whenever stress arrives in that fashion, then in that sense, interest rates would probably still be quite low because there would be these successive waves of, of freshly printed money coming through. However, if the Fed were to simultaneously stop setting interest rates and stop performing its lender of last resort function, things would be very, very different. 
investors would in fact be increasingly concerned that the financial system might properly will collapse in some way, not just one institution, but probably multiple institutions. And there would be a massive flight to safety into non-financial assets, such as gold and other commodities. And financial assets would have to compete uh, with those alternative assets, commodities and gold, uh, for uh, investors' wealth. And as a result, interest rates would have to rise, perhaps quite dramatically, uh, in order to offset that natural flow of assets out of institutions with credit risk, out of securities with credit risk, uh, and into real assets with no credit risk. If you'd made this trade back in March 2009 or April 2009, it would have been the trade of your life. And that trade would have been, I mean, you'd never have to work again, but that trade would have been to take on loads of debt at these incredibly low rates of interest and therefore take on a load of leverage and just buy whatever asset you liked. And you could just be selling it now. You could have been selling it six months or a year ago even. And you would have just made, like I say, enough money to last your lifetime. Whether you bought gold or gold shares or even property, you would still have made a fortune. It would have been an incredibly hard thing to do because there was just so much fear in the markets at that time. Pessimism had reached extreme levels. But if they carry on keeping interest rates at these low levels, more and more people are going to make that trade. In fact, they probably already are making that trade as we speak, and that's why asset markets everywhere are going up, up and up. I mean, what do you make of all that? It's, it's going to end in tears. Well, anything that is artificial and unsustainable uh, will end in tears eventually. The question is on what time horizon and exactly what what form is that end going to take. But certainly... What, what will trigger the end as well, excuse me. Oh, yes, very, very much so. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right that there was a massive encouragement of speculation uh, in early 2009 when both monetary and fiscal authorities, not just in major economies, but even in some smaller economies, and increasingly in concert through all kinds of, uh, of stimulus um, at the economy, and at the financial system directly. And yes, investors reacted to that in a perfectly logical and understandable way, which was to take advantage of cheap money, to leverage up, to accumulate assets, and to be increasingly indiscriminate, as you point out, in their selection of those assets. And we see the evidence of that today. If you look at the correlations across financial assets between stocks and bonds, between stocks themselves, between corporate bonds themselves, take your pick, those correlations are unusually high. There's a very simple explanation for that. The reason they've been going up, and occasionally the reason why over a day or multi-day period they might have corrected a little bit, is ultimately going back to the exact same cause. Perceptions of monetary and fiscal stimulus, past, present, and future. That's what drives things up. That's what drives things down. That's what leaves correlations at unusually high levels. And that implies, and this is an extremely important point, that implies that an investor holding a supposedly diversified portfolio of financial assets today, in fact, has far less diversification in that portfolio than they think they have based on a more normal historical experience.
The thinking behind this strategy was to create a culture of speculation and that, that the profits from speculation would eventually feed their way into the real economy. Uh, does your research show some... I mean, they've created the culture of speculation. A lot of people have made a lot of money, but unemployment is still high. Uh, you know, wages aren't growing. But inflation is up. Sooner or later, people are going to demand higher, uh, higher wages. That's going to create a squeeze on profits. I mean, what, what do you make of all of that? But those observations are all correct, and they are all various reasons why this policy, this general policy of artificial asset reflation, will ultimately fail and be counterproductive. Um, the problem is, is that, yes, fine, in the short term, asset values begin to rise. People aren't as frightened. Um, they feel that their wealth is being at least somewhat preserved, and as a result, they continue spending more or less as before. Um, but the problem is, is that the people that really benefit from that reflation really are those concentrated at the top of society's pyramid in terms of wealth. And their natural propensity to consume relative to their income is obviously relatively low. So you, the, the financial benefits accrue to a handful, um, but ultimately the bulk of the people who actually would normally be spending and consuming are less able to do so because the underlying economic conditions are so poor. Um, so you've created greater wealth disparity, uh, and you've also created that greater wealth disparity on a basis of debt which does need to be serviced, which will need to be paid back someday. Um, and what that ultimately means is that your average taxpayer, who ultimately is on the hook for that debt, is going to have a reduced standard of living longer term as a result of this. Now, how that reduced standard of living manifests itself is unclear. If at some point policymakers pull the plug on all this and allow asset values to collapse, well then yes, that will result in a period of, of very weak uh, economic growth. On the other hand, if policymakers keep throwing more and more money at the markets to keep the reflation game going, well, ultimately, you're going to be devaluing your currency by increasing the supply of that currency in the market. Either way, you're going to lose wealth through debt uh, default or through devaluation. How long can they prop it up for? I mean, they'll prop it up for as long as they can, won't they? Indeed, and to be honest, anyone who tells you they know exactly how long this game can be played is, is, is just, they're, you know, they're, they're lying. Nobody knows. There's tremendous uncertainty. That said, there are some historical guidelines suggestive of how long this sort of thing can keep going. Um, you had examples of monetary authorities trying to prop up financial markets and economies in the 1920s following the devastating economic disaster coming out of World War I. Um, now, those ultimately ended in the tears of the Great Depression, okay? But there was a multi-year period between roughly the mid-1920s, when the UK went back on the um, gold standard, and the end of the 1920s, when the stock markets, both in the US and in, in European countries, began to collapse. There was this multi-year period when the party was indeed very much going, and of course we refer to it fondly now as the Roaring Twenties. You know, little did people know at the time what was in store for them a few years down the road. So that's, that's one example. You also had uh, an example of very dramatic speculation in the late 1990s around the dot-com technologies and tech, uh, information technology generally. Now, while a lot of that technology is with us today and does provide tremendous economic benefits, let's face it, the hype was in excess of those realized economic benefits, and stock markets went through severe corrections in 2001, 2002, and early 2003 as a result. 
But there was a multi-year period there when a relatively easy money policy um, kept that bubble going. Um, of course, when that bubble collapsed, another bubble was created in its wake. That was the housing market bubble. Now that's collapsed, and yes, we have another reflation party going. History suggests this is not going to last more than, say, three years at the outside. Would that be three years from March 2008 or three years? Uh, March 2009. I would say around three years. Anything beyond that begins to stretch the limits of what history uh, suggests in this regard. Well, that's 18 months ago, give or take, maybe a little bit more than 18 months ago, maybe about 20 months ago. We're talking now and just before Christmas uh, 2010. As soon as I, 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 I confront this subject, and I mean, your uh, recent essay was called The Rising Sea of Debt. As soon as I get anywhere in this area, I just, I just want to buy as much gold as I possibly can. Where do you stand? Well, I think gold has been going up for reasons that we've already discussed. Uh, It's going up because there is too much debt in the world. Uh, That is, investors perceive they have too much credit risk. They want less credit risk, so they sell some of their holdings of credit risk. That depresses the price of that credit risk in the market. And as the price goes down, by definition, in nominal terms, that, that credit risk is being reduced. Investors are trying to deleverage on the one hand. On the other hand, policymakers are saying, no, 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 we're going to keep throwing money your way. Please invest it. And hence the reflation party that is currently going. But Where does it all end? Ultimately, it will end in some combination of debt, default, or devaluation. Now, the nice thing about gold is that gold is an asset which cannot be devalued in that you can't print it the way you can print a fiat currency. But then at the same time, gold doesn't carry credit risk. It doesn't default. And so it protects against both of those risks. Very few assets can do that. And indeed, some would argue that gold historically was money in many societies at many different times in history precisely because of this very, very obvious perception when you think about it that it cannot be printed and it can't be defaulted on. I mean, I look at the gold chart most days and, you know, at the beginning of this bull run, every now and then it would pull back to its one-year moving average before it would... uh, make its next launch up but now it's just it hasn't gone back to its one year moving average for for more than two years now it just it might come back to its half year moving average and then make its next launch up now i can look at that chart and i can find all sorts of reasons why gold is going to correct to 1250 or to 1050 or even to 850 but if gold is going to go back to that levels there is going to be mayhem elsewhere I mean, if, the, if gold go back to 12.50 or 10.50, goodness knows how far the Dow's going to fall. That's the thing a lot of people don't understand about gold. It's related to what we just discussed about the fact that gold has no credit risk. The price of gold may go up and down, but as the price goes up and down, the credit risk is not increasing or decreasing because there isn't any to begin with. If the price of gold goes down because the demand for dollars or other major currencies is going up, well, why is that demand for dollars or other major currencies going up? It's because investors are panicking out of reflation trades to go back into those currencies, meaning they are accelerating their drive to reduce credit risk. Well, now, what's that going to do to to stocks and shares? What is that going to do to corporate bond spreads? What is that going to do to the perceived risk of the financial system? I would far rather hold gold when it's declining in price than I would holding 
the risk of the financial system when it's going through another credit deleveraging squeeze like in the fall of 2008. So if you were putting new, mo- new money to, the, uh, to work in the markets now, where would you be putting it? Well, you mentioned gold, and I think it is sensible to hold gold. Now, that said, gold is only one asset. Now, as someone who has worked uh, in interest rate markets, uh, I've also done some work in currency and commodity markets, one of the things which we learn by experience is the benefits of diversification. You don't put all your eggs in one basket, and gold is not the only thing out there with no credit risk. I mean, real assets in general, of course, have no credit risk. They might not have been used as money in the past. They might not have the same safe haven qualities as gold. That doesn't mean that they don't play a role in a sensibly diversified portfolio. And so if diversification is the only free lunch in economics, and I believe it is, then yes, gold can be a core holding of a defensive investor's portfolio, but other liquid real assets, that is liquid commodities, can also play a role. And for that matter, let's not forget, there are some stocks out there that are relatively defensive. They, they trade at low price to book values, they have high dividend yields, they represent perhaps some sort of relatively non-cyclical cash flow stream. Um, who knows what it might be, but I think gold is a good starting point for a defensive investor. I don't think it is the end point for an investor's entire uh, portfolio. I, I hear the arguments about diversification, and I think diversification is a good way of protecting uh, what you have. But if you want to get rich, if you want to m- multiply what you've got, I think I don't think diversification is the way to do it. I think concentration. You, you identify somewhere, uh, you know, an undervalued market, a bull market, and you, you concentrate into that market. That's absolutely right. Um, my discussion of diversification is very much based on the idea of how a defensive investor yeah, would act in the current exactly that's right the the pure preservation of wealth i absolutely believe that if you truly want to get wealthy not only do you have to protect your wealth on the downside you also have to grow it on the upside and yes you're absolutely right to grow it by very dramatic amounts on the upside you are simply going to have to get ahead of the curve you're going to have to identify undervalued assets you're going to have to concentrate some exposure to those assets and you're going to have to time your entry and your exit right that is difficult to do but it needs to be done however in the current environment where investors are still scrambling to try and understand what it means to be defensive at all in a world of debt devaluation and default risks, I think it's good to start with a good defensive base and then and then to reach out from that base and to try and find those opportunities as they come along now in an opportunistic way. Okay, somebody uh, sitting close to us has just run into an old friend. Um, the rising sea of debt... Why don't you outline the main themes of that that article? I know we've covered some of them now. Um, Outline some of the main themes of that essay and, and, and tell us some of the conclusions that you've drawn from it. Well, we have gone through some of it already. Um, The rising sea of debt uses the analogy of global warming to try and help investors understand what exactly is going on in the world. Uh, The fact is is that there is too much uh, debt out there, which from an investor's perspective is, is credit risk. 
Investors want to reduce that, but policymakers are throwing a lot of liquidity their way to discourage them from doing so. And as we discussed, at some point, this is going to this is going to collapse. It's not going to work. It's causing too many economic dislocations and distortions and misallocations. And this is this is an extremely important observation: is that the economy's ability to service the debt it's running up is actually being undermined by the very policies being implemented to prop it up. That is, the misallocations of debt that are occurring reduce the future potential growth rate and therefore reduce the potential income to service that debt. And so, really, we are looking at a sad, sad choice here between an economy which is going to just suffer a much lower potential growth rate in future, or one that goes through a very significant and dramatic collapse today and then finds a way to rebuild. Again, I don't know which of those two it's going to be. I suspect it will be the former, but the rising sea of debt. As a topic, is one where you simply have to accept that at some point the sea level will rise so high it will swamp those living close to the shore. Some may have already got out of the way and protected themselves. Sadly, others won't have done so, and will find that it's simply too late at that point to protect themselves to protect their assets. Okay, I mean, you talk a, a, a lot about protection, so you you clearly see big. Big problems down the line. It's very interesting hearing your thinking. It's very much of the Austrian economic school. You're nodding as I say that, so that's clearly what, what, what where you come from. Um, so uh, let me just think what to ask you next. You're um, from the. Uh, west coast of the United States. You're from California. You've been in Europe for 17 years now. Just about.、Uh, you've obviously experienced,、uh, if not firsthand, from relatives, the great boom bust that's happened in American real estate. What do you make of London property, the market that should but never goes down? London is unique globally in that there are so many different sources of wealth. That have a historic association with London. I mean, obviously, there's the the old English slash European money,、uh, which has an association with with the primary with you know very nice London property.、Um, but then you also have some new European wealth in Eastern Europe, for example, which has an affinity for for London property and for London as, of course, a great European capital. Then, of course, you have a historic association with the Middle East. You know, let's not forget that、um, you know the UK, of course, had colonies all over the world, and that included regions which today are the wealthiest oil-producing regions of the world. And the wealth that is concentrated there has historical links to London, and naturally, these are families that also like having London properties. And then, of course, there's the financial industry. Now, let's not forget that the financial industry has grown by leaps and bounds, notwithstanding the crisis. It's grown by leaps and bounds. Um, in recent years, and of course, a lot of that global financial industry is is based here in London. And as long as policymakers continue to find ways to prop up that industry,、uh, a lot of that、uh, wealth will continue to find its way into London property. So you have many different sources、uh, of wealth to support London property values. However, 
one can imagine a situation where multiple sources uh, of those associations uh, suffer some sort of correction uh, at a similar point in time. Um, and if that were to happen, then I think London would have a long way to fall. But um, certainly, my understanding of the London property market and why it has continued, continued to hold up so well is a combination of, of those factors I just mentioned. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I was born in London, and I was born in 1969, and I can remember growing up in the late 70s and 80s, my stepdad had a... Uh, and it, um, a, a business that sold modern Italian furniture. And the prime buyers of that modern Italian furniture were Arabs who were moving to London. And there were just so many Arabs moved to London in the 70s and 80s, you know, rich on the back of uh, oil. And they spent a great deal of money and they bought up huge swathes of central London. And, and you know, the Londoners tended to move out. Then in the kind of late 80s, they stopped coming, but the Japanese came. And there were just loads of Japanese coming to London in the 80s and 90s, and London was dirt cheap for them. And then in the kind of mid to late 90s, the Japanese stopped coming, and it was, there was Europeans, many Europeans came. And, and, um, and particularly through the first part of this decade, London has been flooded at, at, at all ends, from top end, uh, you know, rich to, to, to penniless, but by Eastern Europeans. And there's some Eastern Europeans who come to London who are so phenomenally rich. And in the kind of mid-noughties, um, you saw, for example, suddenly Harvey Nichols would employ fluent Russian speakers on each floor, as did Harrods. We don't know where the next wave of... I mean, you know, the Russians are still coming and they're still buying, but we don't know where the ne next wave of rich people will be, probably from Brazil, Russia, India, China, you know. But so it's very interesting that you described it like that. This, these people keep on coming to London. <laughs> you're, you're nodding. Uh, OK. Um, John, I'm concerned that things are uh, too expensive at the moment. And even with all the loose monetary policy and everything else, I, I, I find it very difficult to persuade people to invest in anything. I suppose the stock markets could go up and test their 2008 highs. They're already a high ahead of their... Sorry, their 2007 highs. They're already ahead of um, their... Uh, April highs of this year, I suppose gold can carry on going up, I suppose, suppose oil can go back to $150, I mean, would you be a buyer of anything here, or would you wait? I prefer to look at the world in terms of relative value. Now, now again, stepping outside of my basic diversification mantra, um, when actually looking for trying to you know, create some wealth and really get some investment performance. If you look at the world in terms of relative value, I think there are some opportunities out there right now. Um, you mentioned various that, that things in general look expensive. I, I agree with that. Assets in general look expensive relative to the incomes which can purchase those assets. And that implies that there's still a lot of leverage in the world. I mean, deleveraging really hasn't uh, taken place meaningfully because of policymaker action. So think about this though for a minute. What do stocks represent? Corporate equities represent corporate profits and expectations thereof over time. Okay, so if the stock market's rising, people think corporate profits are going to be rising. Well, fine. If central banks are printing money left, right, and center, and that's flowing through the global economy, of course profits are going to go up in nominal terms. 
are they going to go up in real terms? They may not go up in real terms. And in fact, if I'm right, that resources are being misallocated in the background because of all this artificial stimulus, then actually real corporate profits are going to be surprisingly disappointing over the coming decade. Aha. Well, if that's the case, then what we want to do is we want to be underweight corporate output, that is corporate profits, and we want to be overweight the input, which is also receiving the um, the liquidity stimulus, but is not being distorted in the same way. That is, when the Fed prints money or other central banks print money, they don't fundamentally distort the resources that are in the ground. Um, so, for example, what you can do is you can be underweight equities and overweight commodities in a sensibly constructed way. Um, that, to me, is, is a great opportunity. Um, there are many ways to implement it, but as an investment theme, that's one of my favorite investment themes at present. Uh, your other essay that you, that you sent me in, in your December newsletter related to the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, why don't you describe some of the main themes of that essay? Well, you, you probably know that the Fed recently celebrated its centennial uh, at a party um, at the location of its, uh, of its founding, which curiously is on a little island off the coast of Georgia in the United States called Jekyll Island, as in Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> um, in any event... Do you think because of inflation, this, the Fed celebrated its anniversary 10 years early? <laughs> Quite. After 90 years. <laughs> the last 10 years got devalued. Yes, well, it, very, very true. But the, um, it, what I wanted to do with that in that topic was to review that 100 years. And I'm, of course, not the only one who's taken a look at the history of the, of the Federal Reserve. There are many eminent historians who have, who have done so. I quoted one of those historians at length in the piece, a man by the name of G. Edward Griffin, who wrote a book uh, some 20 years ago called The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, talking about the Federal Reserve, of course. And he, he gave a fascinating uh, speech which summarized the book uh, some years ago when the Fed was roughly 80 years old. Um, and he said, look, if you read the Federal Reserve Act, it says in the preamble of that act that the uh, Fed has been created to promote financial stability. Well, if you look at the history of the U.S. financial system since the Fed was created, you arguably have far more instability. Uh, than stability. And certainly that's the case today, where the instability is not just in the U.S., but the, in the instability is global because, of course, the Fed is the primary issuer of the world's reserve currency. So when, when the Fed destabilizes the U.S. economy, by definition, it's destabilizing the entire world economy. So it makes you wonder, wait a minute, let's step back from this. If the Fed has consistently failed to achieve its objectives to promote financial stability and, of course, presumably to defend the value of the dollar, why? Is the Fed incompetent? Is the Fed poorly designed? Or was it designed actually rather intelligently with a different set of objectives in mind? And there are those who believe, and there is some evidence to support this, there are those who believe that the Fed, in fact, has always acted to help protect large U.S. banks from threats wherever they might arise. Prior to the Great Depression, um, banks in the Midwest of the United States were actually growing more rapidly uh, in terms of customer base and market share than the big New York banks. Then, of course, in the Great Depression, banks in general started to get into trouble. But whereas many Miss Western banks were allowed to fail, the Fed did not allow a single major New York bank to fail. 
Well, that shows a bit of a bias now, doesn't it? So you can look at historical experience and see some evidence that perhaps the Fed is simply there to protect the big U.S. financial institutions from whatever comes their way. And of course, one of the easiest ways to protect financial institutions when the going gets tough is to print money or to create emergency extraordinary liquidity facilities, which of course happened in 2008 and 2009. So I think you now see ample evidence that the Fed may not be acting in the best interest of society at large. And I'm not surprised. There is a growing movement in the United States, uh, represented by a handful of prominent politicians and a much larger number of other uh, political activists, to try and rein in the Fed in some way, to restructure it in some way, or in an, some extreme people believe that you should simply get rid of it. John Butler, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Why don't you give your website out as we close if people want to find out more about you? Uh, yes, Amphora Capital uh, has a simple website describing our core business and what we do at www.amphora-capital.com. That's A-M-P-H-O-R-A-capital.com. Great stuff. John Butler, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 